our Lord's biblical response to temptation provides a wonderful pattern for each of us to follow in our own battle with temptation. His temptations teach us profound truths about the nature of temptation, how our Lord overcame temptation, and how we can follow His example. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new six-part series titled Power Over Temptation. Think about your Christian walk for a moment. As a believer, what causes you to be tempted to sin? Is there a specific desire in your life that, once it manifests, becomes a sinful desire that potentially leads to sinful action? Do you feel like you're able to withstand temptation? Well, Tom will examine these questions through the lens of the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ found in Matthew chapter 4. We'll examine the three root desires that cause a myriad of sinful actions the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, and the lust of the eyes. You'll learn how your flesh, the world, and the devil all impact temptation, and how Jesus has given you all you need to overcome temptation. And Tom, though we may not face the exact types of temptation that Jesus encountered in the wilderness, temptations are a real part of every believer's life, aren't they? You know, Bill, they certainly are. And of course, think about it this way. If even our Lord Jesus Christ faced temptation throughout his life, which he did, it wasn't just at the beginning of his ministry, but throughout his life, including even in the garden, then what do we expect about ourselves? Of course, we're going to face temptation. Of course, that's going to be a daily reality in our lives. And although our Lord didn't face every temptation that every person will ever face, what we're going to discover together is that he faced temptation in every category that you and I face temptation. And in doing so and overcoming those temptations, he teaches us how to respond to our temptations, regardless of what category they may fall in. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. Almost everyone who is connected with the Christian church has heard of, has read about, has some knowledge of the temptation of Jesus Christ. But John Broadus, who was a famous American theologian, taught at Southern Seminary in Louisville back in the time of the Civil War, wrote this. Familiar as we have grown with the simple narrative, it presents one of the most wonderful, mysterious, awful scenes of the world's history O oh, dark and dreadful enemy, ever plotting our ruin and exulting in our woe, here thou wast completely conquered on earth, conquered by a man, and in the strength of that spirit whose help is offered to us all. That's exactly right. We can't fathom the depths of what was going on in the wilderness of Judea in the temptation of Jesus Christ. But there is in his temptation hope for all of us. Hope in two senses. Hope because he in his power as a man overcame temptation. And hope because in his power over temptation 
He has shown us the way. He has given us a pattern for power over temptation ourselves. Let me have you turn as we begin to Mark's Gospel, and let me just read for you again the very simple narrative of the temptation as Mark tells it. Mark chapter 1, verse 12. Immediately, that is after his baptism, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. In that very brief summary, Mark captures the struggle of titanic proportions that was taking place in the wilderness of Judea in the lifetime of our Lord. Both Matthew and Luke record three temptations, but those were not Jesus' only temptations. During the 40 days that he was in the wilderness, we're told by Luke, for 40 days he was being tempted by the devil. After the 40 days, Luke adds this at the end of the account of the temptation, when the devil had finished every temptation that's described there, he left Jesus until he had an opportune time. Jesus was tempted throughout the 40 days, and Jesus was tempted throughout his life and ministry. So the three temptations that both Matthew and Luke record were not the only temptations that Jesus endured. Instead, they are representative of the temptations that Jesus faced over that 40-day period, and they are the climax of the temptations that come at the very end of the 40 days. Now, when you look at it that way, that means that the three temptations recorded in both Matthew and Luke are selective. There were other temptations that could have been written for us that are not. These are selected. The question is, by whom? Well, who were the only eyewitnesses of the temptation of Christ in the wilderness? Satan and Christ Himself. The only eyewitness reports of the temptation of Jesus could come to us from Christ. What that means, folks, is that Christ Himself considered these three temptations, He considered that they captured the essence of the temptations that He faced, and He shared these with His disciples. So they are purposefully selected, and that means the three recorded temptations are also representative. These temptations are not the only sins that can be committed, that's clear. These are not even the only categories of sins, as we'll see in a moment. Instead, Jesus' three temptations are the root of every kind of sin, the root causes of every kind of sin. Turn back with me to James. James chapter 1. Let me just remind you of what James says here. It'll be instructive. James says in verse 14 of chapter 1, each one is tempted. Now, this is us, not Christ. Each one is tempted. Each human being who's sinful by birth is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own sinful cravings. There are in us these cravings. Turn over to James 4. He makes the same point here. Verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source 
your pleasures that wage war in your members. You crave, you lust, and you don't have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you can't get, so you fight and quarrel. And so behind our temptations are these cravings. For us, the ultimate source of all of our temptation and our sin are these cravings that flow out of our flesh, the Bible calls it. That's our unredeemed humanness, that part of us that remains unredeemed and that will only be redeemed either when we die or in the body, of course, when Jesus returns and gives us a new body. So there is a part of us as believers, while we have a new nature, we're new in Christ, there is a part of us, the Bible calls it our flesh, that remains unredeemed. And out of that unredeemed part of us, out of that flesh that we still have with us, flows this endless stream of cravings, sinful cravings for things. And all those cravings, which are many and varied, can ultimately be traced back to three root cravings, or three root lusts that are the fountainhead of all temptation. It's in 1 John chapter 2 that we find these. 1 John 2 verse 15 says, Do not love the cosmos, the sinful world set against God. He's not talking here about the creation. He's not talking about all the people in the world. He's talking about a system, a world system set against God. He says, If anyone loves the system, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in this system, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from this wicked cosmos, this system set against God. Notice what John says in that passage. All that is in the world. In some way, these three things he lists here are comprehensive and inclusive. They are, I believe, the three source cravings from which all other cravings come. Here we have reached ground zero in our search for the source of sin and temptation in our lives. There is nothing beneath these. You know what that means? That means if we as Christians are not dealing with these root cravings, these root temptations, we are in fact not dealing with our sin. Now let me see if I can make this a little clearer. Let me give you the progression of temptation. This is pretty straightforward, but stay with me, and I think it'll build a little case for you here. First of all, all sins spring from temptation. We don't sin except for temptation. Temptation comes, James describes it, we are carried away and enticed by our own lusts, and that brings temptation. We give in to that temptation, and it becomes sin. That's how it works for us. All sins spring from temptation. In our case, all temptations spring from sinful lusts. Our cravings is a better word. Something in our unredeemed humanness, in our flesh, that craves satisfaction. Now we're going down here, so stay with me. We started at the surface. Sin, beneath sin is temptation. Beneath temptation is, are these cravings. We're going down another step now into the pit that is our hearts. All sinful cravings ultimately spring from three root sinful cravings. And they are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. I think that's what John the Apostle was saying when he said 
all that is in the cosmos, all that is in the system opposed to God can be described by these three things. Now understand that the cravings we're talking about here, where I've put the word cravings, these lusts or cravings in our hearts, that the cravings themselves are sinful. They come out of our flesh. They are sinful cravings. And our sinful craving meets with an external temptation and we give in. That's what James 1 talks about. Roman Catholic theology teaches that lust or craving in its, quote, first motions, that is, before the will assents, they say that's not sin. That's not what the Bible teaches. Obviously, the Bible teaches that we can be guilty without our will's consent. For example, we're guilty with original sin. We're guilty with Adam's sin, according to Romans 5. And we are also guilty with sins of ignorance. The fact that my will doesn't assent because I did it in ignorance doesn't mean it wasn't sin. And so, obviously, that isn't true. So, understand then this progression. We're digging the pit of sin in the heart. It starts with sin. Below sin is temptation. Below all temptations are the sinful cravings and lusts, according to James 1. And all of those sinful cravings grow out of, flow out of, these three root sinful cravings. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. This is what our flesh wants. Every temptation and every kind of temptation ultimately comes from here. Now that brings us to the bottom. The three root temptations, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, spring from three normal, God-given human desires. We will see this as we examine each of them. This, number four, is the level at which Jesus was tempted. Jesus did not have any sinful cravings in his heart. There was nothing in Jesus that resonated with the external temptation of Satan as there is with us. There was no James 1.14 for Jesus. He wasn't carried away and enticed by his own lust. Instead, for him, it was external and it was appealing to these normal, God-given human desires. Jesus did not have within him sinful cravings that cried out to be satisfied, but he did have normal human desires, just as we do. The difference is that our fallenness, our flesh, seizes on these three God-given desires and perverts them and warps them, and the result is that our fallen hearts take these three desires and turn them in to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Every temptation, every kind of temptation we face will ultimately spring from one of these three root temptations. Just let me give you an example. Take a sin like anger. Anger doesn't immediately appear to fall in any one of those categories, and it doesn't. But anger always arises when our desire for one or more of these things is thwarted. That's where anger comes from. For the sake of continuity, let me give you some examples from marriage. Not that any of you have ever experienced this, but just for the sake of argument, stay with me. Anger, where does it come from? Well, let me give you a couple of different scenarios. A wife confronts her husband for sexual sin. 
and I've seen this in counseling many times, he immediately gets angry. Why does he get angry? Because he wants to be left alone to pursue the craving that was coming out of his heart. So anger ultimately hinges back, springs from these three root cravings. Or take another scenario. A wife is surly with her husband. It's disrespectful. Treats him like one of the children. And he gets angry. Why does he get angry? Because she's not treating him with the respect that he thinks he deserves. It relates back to the boastful pride of life. I have a right to respect, and you're not giving it to me, woman. Or perhaps one spouse is spending money in ways the other spouse doesn't approve. And he or she gets angry. Why? Because she doesn't have what she wants, or he doesn't have what he wants. The house, or the neighborhood, or the car, or the general standard of living. The expectation, I have a right to, you fill in the blank. But ultimately, it comes back to these three root temptations. Consider another example. Take the example of the sin of depression. When does depression come? It relates back to these three things. When a desire for personal pleasure isn't met, a person can be depressed. When a desire for personal glory isn't met, a person can be depressed. When a desire for personal prosperity isn't met, a person can be depressed. Some expectation, some right that ultimately goes back to these three bedrock temptations has been violated. Every temptation you and I experience can ultimately be traced back to one of these three roots. Let me give you a summary of these three roots. The three roots of temptation, root temptation number one. 1 John 2.16 calls it the lust of the flesh. It's sinfully craving the satisfaction of the bodily appetites. Sinfully craving the satisfaction of the body's appetites. The root desire... The root sinful desire that we're talking about here is the desire or the craving for personal pleasure. The God-given desire, which we have perverted into this sinful desire, I think the God-given desire is the legitimate physical desires for food, the physical relationship in marriage, sleep, etc. The things the body desires, and when fulfilled in God's way, according to God's Word, are legitimate. That's where this comes from, but we twist it and pervert it. And this is Jesus' first temptation in Matthew 4, the temptation to turn the bread into stones, which we'll look at in just a moment. Root temptation number two. In 1 John, it's the lust of the eyes. That is, sinfully craving to have what the eyes see. This is a desire to possess, to have. The root sinful desire here is personal prosperity. The God-given desire that lies behind it, I think, is the desire to work hard in the fulfillment of what we've been designed to do and to enjoy the fruit of that labor. From the Garden of Eden on, that has been God's design for man, to work hard in fulfilling the task we've been assigned and to enjoy the fruit of that labor. That's true in the garden before the fall, it's true after the fall, and it'll even be true in eternity according to the Scriptures. So I think that's the God-given desire that our sinful hearts pervert into this desire for personal prosperity, to have. By the way, let me just give a caveat. This is a preacher's caveat. This point, this God-given desire is preliminary and subject to change as I continue to study this particular temptation. 
But that's where I think I'm landing. Jesus' third temptation in Matthew 4 relates to this. It's to sinfully pursue the kingdoms of the world. To pursue the kingdoms of the world in a sinful way. What will ultimately be His by right to pursue it differently than God's design. Root temptation number three. 1 John 2.16 calls it the boastful pride of life. The root sinful desire is the desire for personal glory. I don't want to be respected. I want to be sun god. As Garrison Keillor writes in his book, I want people not to say, nice job. I want them to fall down on their faces before me, and I want to say, rise, my people, lift your faces from the carpet. The desire for personal glory. The God-given desire, I think, that lies behind this is the desire to bring glory to God. We were made to bring glory to God, but we take that and our wicked hearts pervert it into His desire for personal glory. This correlates to Jesus' second temptation in Matthew 4, to jump from the temple to confirm His Messiahship to others. And we'll look at that in detail. So, the three temptations that are recorded for us are selective and they are representative of the root causes of sin, they are also instructive. Don't forget that these temptations are recorded both to demonstrate Jesus' own power over temptation and also to provide us with a pattern for overcoming these same categories of temptations in our own lives. Let me put it to you like this. Our Lord's biblical response to temptation provides a wonderful pattern for each of us to follow in our own battle with temptation. His temptations teach us profound truths about the nature of temptation, and by watching our Lord's response, we learn as sort of eyewitnesses, as it's reported to us, how our Lord overcame temptation and how we can follow His example. We're going to do it from Matthew's account, and I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. Because of the three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew clearly seems to indicate that his account is chronological because he repeatedly uses the word then, as if to say in chronological order. I want us to deal with the first temptation and the first great root from which all of our temptation comes. It is that of physical desire, of the body's appetites. Look at Matthew chapter 4, and I want to begin with the preparation. Verse 2 says, And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. Now we aren't told here why Jesus fasted. Usually it involved in the Old Testament as well as in the New. It involved serious prayer and meditation. It was often associated with mourning. Fasting is a separate message entirely. But just note that the fact that Jesus fasted for 40 days does not mean that we should follow his example and fast the 40 days of Lent leading up to Easter. Matthew adds that Jesus fasted 40 days and nights. If you notice that most fasts, including Lent, including the Muslim fast leading up to Ramadan, or as part of Ramadan, they all include fasting during the day and then eating to your heart's content when the sun goes down. That wasn't Jesus. He didn't fast during the day and gorge himself at night. He fasted day and night. Only three men in Scripture have ever done this. Moses at Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, Elijah on the way to Horeb in 1 Kings 19, and our Lord. That's it. 
And Jesus only fasted like this one time in his ministry that we have a record of. We're, we're not told if he ever did again. It certainly wasn't yearly. And there is only one fast clearly commanded in the entire scripture, and that is the fast for the Day of Atonement. In this case, Jesus fasted, regardless of the specific reason, he fasted under the direction of the Spirit for 40 days and 40 nights, the same Spirit that compelled him into the wilderness. At the end of that period, Matthew says, he was hungry. Now, there's a pretty serious understatement. It wasn't that he'd gone without food for some five or six hours like you and I have. Instead, he had gone completely without food for more than a month. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series titled Power Over Temptation. Tom will have part two for you on our next program. Join us, won't you? And friend, to serve as an elder in a local church is a noble ambition, but it comes with a sobering responsibility. The existing church leadership must actively be seeking to identify, equip, and appoint elders to continue the work of ministry. Invite your pastor and other church leaders to join Tom Pennington February 18th in South Lake, Texas, as he is a featured speaker at this year's XL Ministries training conference, Becoming Biblical Elders. Visit thewordunleashed.org for more information and registration links to the conference. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.